All right, I'm here today with Joyce Brand. Um, this is a really exciting interview. I'm very, very happy to have Joyce here today. We've got a lot of things to talk about, and um, I'm going to let Joyce introduce herself. But I first just wanted to give you guys an idea of what what Joyce is all about, what this interview is all about. Um, this book, Spencer Heath, Economics and the Spiritual Life of Free Men, I first discovered it when it was sort of in its infancy. It was a different version of this book several years ago when it was being worked on. And it kind of blew my mind because there's this whole narrative out there about how free markets are all about encouraging selfishness and they're just about money. And, and if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, all you care about is money and you're just this sort of cold hearted, soulless creature. This, this book and Spencer Heath's thinking to me really is, is an answer to that. And it's, it's an answer that goes I think historically goes to a time before that narrative was sort of promulgated to where, you know, it was perfectly natural for people to, um, to, to go into business and, um, you know, not, not be attacked and demonized for it. And maybe even recognize that people conducting business are, are providing service or are actually helping their fellow man. Um, that's kind of what this is all about. I'm going to let Joyce explain more about it, but I think this is, I think that his thinking in this book is really, I don't want to say groundbreaking because I feel like his thinking goes, comes from a time before all of this nonsense that we're sort of permeated in now, but it's really, really important. Um, so let me, let me let Joyce do most of the talking here. So Joyce, could you just introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us, tell us who you are, what you're up to, what your background is. Hi, I'm Joyce Brand, and I've had a lot of careers in my life, uh, uh, writing, uh, feature film editing in Hollywood, being a corporate manager in the temporary health service industry. Um, but I've always believed in freedom and voluntary association that uh, everything works better in the private sector. Uh, where people are free to uh, follow their own self-interest and do business and um, uh, interact with people voluntarily rather than coercively. So uh, I, uh, I guess my story really about this book starts in 2010 when I co-founded the Voluntarist Conference Libertopia, and we invited Spencer McCallum to speak because he was an anthropologist who had studied a lot of voluntary societies and written about voluntary societies. And through that, I became friends with him. He was a wonderful man, uh, one of the most positive people and uh, a real inspiration. Um, we became close enough friends that I spent several months with him and his wife in uh, Casas Grandes, Mexico, where they'd lived for many years. And that's where Spencer introduced me to uh, the ideas of his grandfather, Spencer Heath. And I was so impressed with who the man was. Spencer Heath was so many different things. He was started out as an engineer, an inventor, a manufacturer. Uh, he was first known as a pioneer in the aviation industry. Uh, in the early 20th century, he uh, was 
a lawyer, a teacher. He co-founded the Henry George School, where he lectured. Spencer introduced me to a very early version of the book. Uh, at that time, it was called Market and Religion Reconciled. And that's really what the major idea was, that Spencer Heath saw that there was no real contrast between uh, like economics and religion or science and religion or uh, spirituality and freedom. The proposed book was based on a series of talks that Spencer Heath gave at Chapman College in 1961. And the Ideas were so important to the president of the college that he had the talks professionally recorded. Uh, Spencer McCallum wasn't there at the time, but he had transcribed all the talks, including the question and answer period after each talk. And the draft that I read was little more than the transcripts, but it had a profound effect on me. Uh, reading about the ideas of how uh, integrated Spencer Heath's ideas, uh, how integrated the ideas of market and religion and uh, freedom were all so uh, made so much sense to me that I was really impacted. And uh, I, it was many years before I did anything about it, but but I never forgot how much that meant to me to read those ideas. So uh, Spencer McCallum did publish a sort of a, a first printing of the book in 2018. And that's the one that Brettany read. Uh, and he was, he was not really satisfied with it because he didn't feel like it gave the full story or expanded the full scope of his grandfather's philosophy. So he continued working on it. And in 2020, um, when COVID started, <laughs> I was planning on leaving the U.S. Uh, to move to Colombia, which, of course, I wasn't able to do because of the COVID restrictions. But because of the lockdown, I was calling like all the people I hadn't had, hadn't spoken to recently and I, one of the people I called was Spencer McCallum. And I discovered that he had been in a horrendous car accident. He'd been run over by a car that had to be lifted off of his shattered body. I mean, it was a pure miracle that he survived. But I think it was his strength of will because he was that kind of person. And he knew his work wasn't done. Um, because he couldn't work on the book or his other projects, uh, which included archi an archive of his grandfather's work, um, I got the idea. I mean, it, it was very easy for me to move to Mexico instead of Colombia so that I could help Spencer. And he was um, in uh, very frail, but we we were able to work. His mind was good. Um, he didn't lose his cognitive abilities at all. So we worked together by him uh, him being in bed and me reading to him and getting his approval and talking about the ideas. And the first thing we did was 
completed a second edition of Citadel Market and Altar, which was Spencer Heath's book that was published in 1957. And then, because we worked so well on that, Spencer asked me to help him complete Economics and the Spiritual Life of Free Men. And as we were working on it, I was so impressed with how Spencer had sort of expanded on the question and answer period. Uh, There were some real questions and answers in the transcripts, but then he added questions that he could answer from the archive uh, in his grandfather's words and really flesh out the ideas that were only touched on in, you know, at the real time. Um, So I had the idea of uh, that it, because Spencer Heath had such a poetic way of speaking, uh, it doesn't come across as well in writing in modern, that was 60 years ago. So in modern times, I thought it would be more relatable and memorable to tell a story around the speeches. And it was based on my own experience of having been impacted so strongly by the ideas. And Spencer thought that was a wonderful idea. Uh, he <laughs> he supported it totally. And I realized later it was because he wanted me to have standing as co-author of the book so that I could protect the legacy. And that was what I'm very happy to be doing here now. <laughs> um, the The ideas were just so powerful. Um, and it was such an important uh, part of Spencer's life's work. Uh, and as it happened, um, he did start to decline as we were finishing the book. We finished it in October of 2020. Um, I called his friend and fan, Massimo Mazzoni, who is a businessman in Honduras, and told him that Spencer was not expected to live out the year. So Massimo traveled to Mexico. Uh, We had a really wonderful dinner party, which was Spencer's last, the last time that he was able to sit up and eat and drink on his own and talk. And he even made a joke. He was so happy. Um, After the dinner, Massimo explained to me his vision of creating a city in Honduras, Ciudad Morazan, which is based on the ideas of Spencer Heath and, and Spencer McCallum, the ideas that Spencer had worked on all of his life in uh, with his research and uh, writing about the theory. And when Massimo told me about his vision, I had to be involved with that. So um, I... Could I interrupt just to, I want to, I'd like to clarify one thing. So when you say that Massimo's idea for for the city was based on the ideas of Spencer Heath and Spencer McCallum, what does that mean? Ah, um, the, the really unique innovation that Spencer Heath made was the insight that the obvious person to provide public services is not 
a government, a coercive political government, the obvious entity to provide public services is the owner of the land. This was where he was dissented from Henry George because he saw the value of what the owners of land could actually provide in services besides just uh, managing distribution of the land or, or you know, maintaining title. And his, his idea was, which I don't think anybody else had ever really talked about or written about that much, was that the owner of the land has incentive that are in all of his incentives are totally aligned with the incentives of his tenants. That if the tenants prosper, then that makes his land more valuable. And he prospers along with his tenants. And so there's a direct alignment. It's like a, a company doesn't do things to kill its customers. His customers, he does things to make its customers happy. Any business has to be like that in order to profit. Yeah, and the um, unless they unless they get the government to waive liability for the harms their products cause and and get them to mandate that everyone has to take them. Exactly. Yeah, in a normal, exactly. yeah. That's why Spencer Heath's idea was that there should be no coercive political government. That it should be all, all of the public services that government claims to provide, although it provides them badly, um, yeah. all of those services are better provided by the owner of the land. And if owners of property maintain their title and rent the property or lease it long term rather than selling it, then they maintain the responsibility of providing the services and they have the incentive to make sure that those services are what people really want. And the way that you know what people really want is what they're willing to pay for. So yeah. the, the, um, the money to cover the cost of providing the services comes from rent rather than taxes. So it's voluntary is people voluntarily pay the rent for the services that they want. And you can't, the landowner can't afford to be um, charging for things that people don't really want, like wars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, welfare states that make people dependent. Because those kinds of things, like welfare and um, uh, education and things like that, uh, uh, health care, all of those things are people that can provide for themselves, uh, perhaps cooperatively, much better than could be provided by any coercive government. And politics just makes all ruins all the incentives. It makes yeah. uh, it makes people enemies that everyone has to fight each other for who gets to decide. Uh, where where the resources of the community or the nation or the, the world <laughs> yeah. goes. Well, and the uh, politicians, the political class benefits when there's a dependent class. They're, you know, they're yes. empowered when when people aren't able to to you know make their own way in life and they become dependent on the state. That just that feeds them. That's oh, you need us, you know, if 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 you can't function on your own, then you need the political class. But you know, that's the only circumstance in which you do need them. Um, 
What about protection and defense? Is that is that was Spencer Heath's vision also that like police? I don't want to say policing, but like protection, security, and defense are those all things that the landowner would provide too? Absolutely. the The main government services are kind of uh, three things: security, mm-hmm. infrastructure, and uh, some kind of legal system, legal framework, defend like uh, dispute resolution, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But those three things. I mean, people talk about, uh, oh, you have to have the government for for police and building the roads and uh, providing the courts. But he understood that all three of those very important services are better provided by the landowner. And uh, the to answer your question about how Ciudad Morazan was designed to be based on Spencer's ideas, it was that it was because it's semi-autonomous, um, the city provides security in the sense of guards that are private guards. They have no uh, immunity, <laughs> sovereign immunity. They, they are people. They're employed by the city. If they don't protect the life, liberty, and property of the residents, they get fired. Or even if they're rude to the residents, they get fired. So, right. so that is so much better a way to provide those things that we all want, safety and security. Um, and there's no place that needs that kind of service more than Honduras. Ciudad right. Morsan is located in Choloma, Honduras, which is known as one of the most dangerous cities in the world that isn't an actual war zone. Wow. It is a very wow. high crime, very dangerous. And the guards in Ciudad Morazan are are private. They they can easily be fired if they don't do their jobs, but their job is not to enforce ridiculous rules. Their job right. is to protect. It really is to protect. And have have has the city had trouble from I mean if, if this is a dangerous crime ridden area, do you get a lot of crime coming in? Is are is it protected by walls or like how how do you prevent that from spilling over into into where you guys are living? It is protected by walls. We have a wall around the city. We have a gate with um, armed security guards at all time. We have an app, a phone app that everyone uses so that they can, uh, it makes it very convenient to screen the people that are coming in. Um, Because it's a private city and it's privately owned, uh, the residents are all vetted to make sure they aren't criminals. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the biggest, biggest uh, benefits of the city for the residents mm-hmm. is that they know that the city's not going to rent to people who are criminals. Right. So we can keep out the criminals. We can keep out the gangs uh, that that infest all of the other neighborhoods yeah. in the area. And uh, that's one of the most beautiful things about it. The Honduran police are not allowed to come in to harass the residents. Uh, They can't come in at all unless they're invited. Now, if there is real crime, I mean, we are under the criminal 
uh, I live in Ciudad Morazan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was when when Massimo described his vision, I wanted to be part of it. And so I, I was the second resident in Ciudad Morazan. Wow. And that's uh, one of the things um, that that we value most is uh, the uh, the fact that the Honduran National Police can't can't come in looking for crimes and harassing people and extorting businesses the way they do in other areas. So how did that happen? What's what's the agreement? Um, what what kind of agreements did you guys have with the Honduran government that establishes that? And 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 why do you trust that agreement? <laughs> that's, and that's a big question. <laughs> yes, and and that is that is a big a big subject. Um, back, it took years, but the the previous government of Honduras. Uh, was notoriously corrupt. But there were some good people who had good intentions that were in the government who wanted to help the Honduran people and wanted to, you know, bring in more investment, more jobs, um, help the economy. And even the most corrupt of the politicians in that party could see the benefit of that kind of uh, allowing enough freedom to increase the prosperity so that they could remain in power. I mean, they were, like all politicians, they were following their their uh, personal um, best interest. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by staying in, they were convinced that by helping the Honduran people, they could stay in power. Now, unfortunately, I mean, and so because of that, they passed a bunch of very, very good safeguards about, you know, the law that established the autonomy of the ZEDES, that's Zones for Employment and Economic Development, in Spanish acronym. Um, they made sure that that law could only be repealed by two-thirds of the Congress. They also signed international treaties assuring that there would be legal stability for the Zetes for 50 years. And they even uh, changed the constitution to allow uh, for the Zede law. And that was, that was the thing that uh, encouraged people or made, assured people that they could invest in Honduras now, unfortunately, <laughs> last year, <laughs> there was an election where the Honduran people, very short-sightedly, were thinking, oh, we have such a corrupt government and the socialists are pro promising all these things about how they're going to get rid of corruption and they're going to bring in more uh, economic development and and they they were telling all these lies about how the Zetis were designed for uh, you know to protect the corrupt government and and that they were going to expropriate land. I mean, really, wow. totally wow. easily disprovable lies. But the Honduran people bought into 
the lies of the socialist government, as so many people in Latin America have bought into, like Venezuela. And everywhere else. And, you know, here too. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's happening in the U.S. too. And uh, that's the way that socialist politicians get their power and stay in power. And the Honduran socialists did the same thing. And because people were upset about the corruption of the previous government, they elected the socialist government. Well, in the almost one year since the socialist government has been in power, everything has gotten worse. Crime has gone up. Um, the All of the things that they promised have not happened. Uh, roads are worse. I mean, everything is worse. And there, most of the people that voted for them are regretting it, but what can they do? They're in power now for four years. And one of the worst things that they did was they repealed the Zede law. And uh, they got the national party that had supported the Zedes to go along with them so that they could have a unanimous vote. And we, who knows what all happened behind closed doors to make that happen. But um, they have basically broken the promise of the previous administration. And they are now being sued for $10 billion by the Zede Prospero, which was the first Zede. Right. Uh, We're both under the same law, but the two, there's actually three Zedes, but the two uh, most active ones are the first two, Prospero and Ciudad Morrison. And Prospero has an advantage of being on... Uh, an island in the Caribbean where it's a lot harder for the government to march in the army to shut them down. And they, um, their business model is such that they've been getting investment. Uh, Ciudad Morazan is uh, solely funded by Massimo and his company. Mm. Uh, Whereas Postra has been getting a lot of foreign investment. And so they have, a lot of American investors who um, supposedly protected by the treaty that the U.S. made. And so far, the U.S. government hasn't done much to help the Zedes. Um, they, some uh, Republican Congress people have talked about that they should because it's an obvious benefit for the U.S., for the U.S. people, not for the U.S. government, but for the U.S. people, for the nearshoring uh, with the problems with China and supply chain disruptions. It's a big benefit to have a great port like uh, Puerto Cortez, which is only uh, 35 kilometers from Ciudad Morrison. If we have manufacturers that can ship out of that port to the U.S., it's a big advantage for U.S. companies but and consumers. Um, but it's not that big a deal for the government. It's not that big a benefit. I mean, it is a benefit for the government, but it doesn't seem to be a big enough benefit for them to do anything to pressure the Honduran government to keep their promises. So what happens if the U.S. government doesn't assume that they don't do anything to to help out here? Um, 
what what happens are you are you, are, are the ZAs doomed what what's the well, that's that's a good question Prospera has continued operating and building because their business model is mainly geared toward foreigners mm-hmm. uh, it's a resort island it's a beautiful Caribbean island where you know people want to buy property and and they've got their innovations are in the area of uh business um technology uh things like medical tourism which is yeah. great yeah. and i mean we we wish them all the best uh because they are doing you know really wonderful things uh but our business model is different because ciudad morazan is based on spencer heath's ideas is designed to help the working class honduran people it's uh-huh. designed to bring in like manufacturing jobs that um, would help the people. And it's also designed to, to raise the standard of living of the Honduran people, a working class. Uh, the, the safety of the city is great for the workers, but it's a mutual thing that it's, the design is by bringing in businesses, the workers can live and work in a safe environment. Um, there's a lot of the workers are um, single, single mothers, and for them to have to leave their children to go to work yeah. in a macula, in a you know a factory is very bad for them. Yeah. So for them to live in the same city where they can walk to work, it also saves them transportation costs. And the benefit to the companies is not only the uh, you know the tax benefits and customs things and, and low lower reg- regulatory burden that we offer with our autonomy, but it's also having those workers right there close where they don't have to worry about their workers not being able to show up. Right. Um, they don't have to worry about paying for transportation to get their workers in. So it's so, a very mutually beneficial for the manufacturers and the workers and small businesses that can service the community, like cafes and um, you know, little convenience stores and all kinds of things. So that our business model in Ciudad Morazan is really based on security, um, the the infrastructure that we've been building, things like water treatment plants and water tower and and uh, you know waste management, all those things, and the the legal structure which is basically a simplified version of the Honduran civil code and um encouraging arbitration rather than mm-hmm. the corrupt Honduran judges that work for the government and that's that's always with the legality uh third party arbitration if you do it right is so much better now there's a lot of arbitration that's done in the US that's not done right. It's almost as bad as government courts, but but there are there are ways. Yeah. So yeah. I I can I can hear I can hear um you know a lot of a lot of sort of people on the left here in the US 
screaming as, as they hear you talk about this and saying, well, it sounds like a company town. It sounds like, you know, um, the old coal mining towns or something where there's, you know, one industry in town and the, the capitalists just dominate and they abuse people. How would you respond to criticisms of that nature? Yeah, in in some ways, it does take the best aspects of a company town. But the difference is, it's not just one company. I mean, the the company that owns the town is the one that is that owns the land is the one that's incentivized to make rules that people want. If people don't like the rules that that the company makes, they it's very easy for them to leave, to move a mile away. Mm-hmm. So it's totally voluntary. It's totally contractual because everyone who lives in Morazan has a contract with the company that if the company does not keep its promises, they can sue for damages in arbitration. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, probably the biggest difference between Ciudad Morazan and the traditional company town is that it's not just one company. I mean, the manufacturers are tenants. The The company that the people will be working for uh, is a tenant of the city. And it uh, is also kind of under the same, it has a contract with the city that uh, it there are uh, labor statutes that the companies have to follow that protect the workers. And... Uh, there's there's really there's no like monopoly there and i know what you say people always say oh well if the city if the company owns the town they can do whatever they want but that is so far from the truth that well and it's funny because those 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 same people will you know will kind of blithely ignore the actual monopoly of you know city governments you know, exactly. or, or state governments um, who don't have an incentive to, um, you know, or, or whose whose incentive is very, um, very limited. You know, they're not they're not really held accountable. They're not they're not going to lose their jobs. This the city government's not going to go under if the residents aren't doing well. You know, financially, exactly. they might do better. They might have more of our tax money yes. to play with, but they don't have. It's not the same kind of of. Um, it's not the same kind of of skin in the game that you have when you know it really is your it really is your property and you rise or fall depending on how it does. It's it's a very different thing from if you're, you know, in government and that government's going to stay in place, you know, regardless of how badly the economy does. Um so I just I've always that, that's just kind of it's a it's a funny Yeah. 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 So um and and the social contract is not a real contract. Right. You can't, you right. can't really sue the government. And, and that's and that's theory. what we're learning <laughs> Yeah, we're learning that right now. They can kind of get away with whatever they want. They can, and there's, it's very difficult to find ways to hold them accountable. Um, I love, I love the, I love the fact that it, that this is all contractual based because, um, you know how how amazing if you know let's say you know workers in the factory or you know have have some kind of gripe rather than having to go on strike and you know create some labor movement and 
go around and get people to sign a petition and, you know, all the, the typical things you associate with political action, which is very labor intensive, very time consuming and very ineffectual. They actually have built, they, they have a contract with these people. And, you know, if you violate the contract, you'll be, you'll be held accountable in a, in a, in a court. So that brings up another question. What is, what court, let's say somebody had a, a dispute. If, if, if whatever arbitration methods, you know, don't, let's say that doesn't work out, is there a court there that then takes on, takes on disputes that aren't resolved by arbitration? Well, the, there are levels of arbitration. Okay. And the fact that people choose their own arbitrators, um, there's, that's what I meant by arbitration done right. If you've got third-party arbitration where each side chooses an arbitrator and they um, uh, do uh, uh, each party chooses an arbitrator and then they choose another arbitrator, that helps a lot. Um, also, there's some ideas. Uh, Tom W. Bell has done a lot of work on consent-based government governance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. different kinds of arbitration that works better, that um, uh, gives you a better better results. And, of course, if people are choosing their own arbitrators, arbiters, (laughs) if people are choosing their own people, then the, the incentive for those people is to develop a reputation for fairness. Right. Whereas a judge right. who has a government job does right. not have that incentive to he doesn't establish. lose anything if if except his own self-respect if if exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's the more the more things are privatized, the better the incentives are. And that's where um we think we have such an advantage over any other kind of jurisdiction, but people aren't aren't even aware of those things and they've been uh-huh. they don't understand the benefits uh-huh. and there's so much propaganda about how the government's the only one that's able to do all of these things right i i mean even even some of the people that you would expect to know better have believed that oh well you know we need a government you can't have voluntary society because we need a government to enforce and use force and make the rules and enforce the rules and right. all of the stuff that is just not true at all. People are able to do those things for themselves. Yeah. I've sure shown that, but, but, you know, it's the prevailing winds have been. <laughs> well, and, and like you said, a massive, a massive propaganda effort over generations to, to yeah. spread this narrative. Um, let's yeah. talk about enforcement a little bit. So what does enforcement look like? Um, ah, well, in, in Ciudad Morazan, if somebody breaks the rules that they have voluntarily agreed to, then their rent, their lease won't be renewed. I mean, it's very simple. It's not a matter of having to arrest them or take them to court or or even force them into arbitration. Mm-hmm. People don't don't follow the rules that they voluntarily agreed to, then 
it's just a simple matter of when their lease comes up for renewal. Now we're talking about small, you know, fairly small rules here. Right. Obviously, if there's a serious crime, then that would be handled uh, differently. It, it would be we would invite the the police, the, the Honduran police, to arrest the person and you know take them to court and all of that sort of thing. Um, but from Ciudad Marazan's position there it, it no longer becomes if, if there's a crime the person is just no longer that that's no longer under your jurisdiction is that it that that becomes yeah that if you if don't handle a, criminal matters crime, in other words i mean if, if it's a crime i mean the guarantee is that we'll protect the the life liberty and property of the residents mm-hmm. so a real crime is one that damages the life liberty or property yeah. of the and those crimes are handled under the Honduran criminal law. Okay, uh, but presumably the the security guards have something like they they have some role in in um, well preventing those crimes, but also like in apprehending. Like if they're if let's say a murder was committed, would the security guards get involved with that at all, or would it just be? Um, it. It sort of depends on the situation, but I mean, if the the murderer is known, then uh, just calling in the national police to arrest him would be sufficient. Uh, the The kinds of things that are most likely to happen and cause people problems are not real crimes. They're they're disputes. They're things mm-hmm. like, um, well, we have a rule that that you don't double park because it causes people inconvenience. Mm-hmm. And the security guard will remind the person, hey, you're not supposed to double park. And if they continue to do it, then they probably will lose their lease they, you mm-hmm. know, to renew their rent. Mm-hmm. And, and there is sort of a structure that the first the first lease is always very short, like three months. Uh-huh. So you can you can quickly get rid of people who are causing problems for their neighbors. And that's really the that's kind of what to me, that's kind of what peacekeeping means in a community that that you want everyone to be able to count on having a a quiet, peaceful existence. And so you don't want people to be um, doing obnoxious things like blocking your parking and stuff like that. Right. And those can, can easily be handled by security guards rather than um, policemen. Right. It's not just rise to the level of crime, really. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and in a complete, now there there are different models that are completely free private cities where it's not uh, under, you know, like under the umbrella of a uh, of a national government, a nation state. Uh, like Ciudad Morazan is not a real free private city because it is under the uh, the jurisdiction, you know, to a certain extent. Even though there are all of these legal. Uh, rights to autonomy it's not complete now a free private city that along the lines of the 
the model described by Tita Skebel in his book, Free Private Cities, uh, things would be handled a little bit differently because they would handle real crimes and, and things like that. But for what we're doing, uh, there is no such, I mean, there isn't really a city that has like a city operator that's hired to run the city and do all of those services. Um, we're talking about the landowner doing it. Spencer Heath's idea was the landowner doing it. The idea of a city operator uh, is, I personally don't think is quite as effective, but I understand it's still a much, much superior model to having politicians doing it, making the decisions. Um, one of the things that Spencer Heath said that really impressed me was that um, the landowner is the obvious administrator of the land, and to ask his tenants to vote and help him decide what to do to administer the land is not fair to the tenants. Why should it? It's not a matter. I mean, it's been framed by the politicians as being, oh, those apathetic voters, <laughs> they're not coming out and voting like and doing their civic duty. But it's actually just the opposite. When you really look at what the reality of the situation, people don't have time. I mean, they're trying to do what they do best to serve their fellow man, to make a living, and to have to take their time to become knowledgeable enough to make decisions that should be made by the administers of the government. Right. Well, and we, we're living with the results of, of that now. You know, the fact of the matter is people don't and nobody can. There's no there's no way anybody could you know, even if they spent their whole day on it every day in and day out, become knowledgeable enough in every single thing that's that's on, you know, whatever ballot of whatever town you're living in, that's right. nuts. And so we get people who are ignorant, you know, and rationally so for the most part, ignorant about what's being presented to them as choices and making, you know, ridiculously stupid decisions. So it's just, it's just like this cycle that keeps taking us, you know, down and down and down further. Um yeah, no, I, yeah. I completely agree. Absolutely. It's like the Honduran people. They, they didn't know that the socialists were going to break all their promises as soon as they got in power. Right. And and really, how could they? I mean, you know, this is a very poor country and they're struggling to make a living. And how do you expect them to know? Right. To be that politically savvy. Yes, exactly. And of course, the people that, that went out and voted so enthusiastically were the ones that were, you know, believing the, oh, we'll get all this free stuff. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, who are, in a way, the most ignorant because they didn't realize they were going to be betrayed. Right, right. I mean, very similar, very similar to what's happened to what's happened in our country with all the COVID, the COVID nonsense, you know, the people who, yes. who I think who are being hurt the worst by it are the ones who really sincerely believed it was going to help them. Um, I wanted to add, because we've been talking about this, this model, you've mentioned to me before something that I wasn't aware of, I'd never heard of, um, the manor system. And it seems um, very much in alignment with what Spencer Heath is talking about. I don't know 
if I'm sure there are some differences, could you just talk a little bit about what that is? What is the manor system and, and how is Spencer Heath's vision different? Well, the manor system was in effect, sort of, <laughs> partially in England, especially during, like before the Norman conquest in 1066. And um, it was really a matter of the the strong man in his castle. There was, a, you know, the landowner who had the ability to protect the, the people that uh, chose to live on his land. And there was, there, it wasn't, back in those days, it wasn't a matter of serfs. The people weren't attached to the land. They were free. They were called free men. And they could decide which strong man they wanted to pledge their allegiance to and live on his land and depend on him for protection. And they paid, their rent was in kind. So uh, they they might they might fight for him to protect, you know, to protect the community, but it was basically a matter of freedom. The the strong man didn't rule just because he had, uh, you know, conquered other people or something like that. It was because he was trusted to take care of the land and take care of the people. And that's, so the, the principle is sort of the same. The difference of course is in technology. Uh, the technology has changed so much that it, it's so much easier to uh, follow those principles now. I mean, absent government interference, but it it would be <laughs> so much easier with the technology we have and the knowledge that we can have that if a uh, a company is not keeping their promises, it can be easily known. And the technology is there to to be able to seek relief, arbitration, whatever. It, and the the ease of movement is so much easier. That's really, it's ease of exit that really makes the, the manorial idea more effective. Uh, it was a little hard then. I mean, you could go over the hill to another manor and, you know, find a, find a better provider of those services, but it was harder then. So... I don't think that there's a real different. Spencer Heath did use that example, the example of England at the time of uh, Alfred the Great, as as a time where uh, it wasn't feudal in the sense of the the serfs and people being attached to the land. Right, and so that came. Do you know why it is that that feudalism then sort of overtook this model? Um, and it's Spencer, fine if you don't. I know, I know you're not like a historian. No, no, no it's a good question. Spencer Heath's uh, idea was that, of course, we were the, I guess, human society was evolving from a, a tribal and a kinship kind of society to more of a, a empire. Mm -hmm. And 
the empires like the Roman Empire uh, were very much a matter of authoritarian control. Uh, you know, the, the emperor's word is law, uh, the divine right of kings, all of those things. And the closer the people were to the Roman Empire, the more influenced they were by those ideas. Mm. Uh, England, being so far from the Roman, the, the seat of the Roman Empire, was able to be more free. The barbarians, the Germanic barbarians, were more free mm -hmm. because they were further from the empire. And it was the Roman conquest that really changed England mm -hmm. because the Roman, the uh, the Norman con, I say the Norman conquest yeah. uh, changed England because the Normans were more, more influenced by the the ideas of empire. And the more ideas of empire, any empire wants serfs. They don't want free men. Yeah, they don't want uh, their they want subjects who they can tax. And the idea of uh, free men making a, a contract with their lord, <laughs> with mm -hmm. the owner of the manor, uh, for protection. And, you know, we'll, this is the payment that we'll make in kind uh, <laughs> in exchange for the protection of the, the castle or the keep or whatever. Um, that was foreign to the idea of empire. Yeah, yeah. And the continent was pretty much overtaken by the idea of empire during the, um, after the fall of the Roman Empire, during all of the Dark Ages, that the continent and, and eventually England were more overtaken by those ideas uh, where people became attached to the land rather than being free to go to where they were treated best. Mm -hmm. But there's no reason why we can't go to where we're treated best. Right. There's no place available that treats us really the way we want. <laughs> yeah, ex except for, you know, starting our own. Um, yes. You know, that's interesting because we always, you know, we think about the Middle Ages as being sort of a repudiation of the empire model and more decentralized and, you know, these smaller, smaller sort of fiefdoms. But I guess those were still on the feudal model. They weren't, they never yes. went back to the manorial model. So, right. you know, maybe it's not too late for us to, to do that. My big question for you is what do you think? Um, I, could oh, I make you, one point about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, about one of the things that I really admire about Spencer Heath was he saw the, the progress of humanity as, uh, you know, starting with these tribal Society was tribal, then it was uh, empire, and then it was the uh, democracy, <laughs> representative democracy and all that was yeah. a big improvement over the, uh, the divine right of kings. So the, the idea of voluntary society is the next step in the evolution of human society. Mm. And so he was able to not be angry about the injustices of representative democracy because he saw, he saw it, it going beyond. Yeah. 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 I, I'm sorry. I wanted to point that out. Yeah, um, no, that's a, that's, that's good. Um, that's good context. That's, it's nice. Yeah. And it's, and that, cause I, I knew Spencer McCallum too, you know, not as well as you did, but I, I was always impressed with his ability to be positive. You know, his sort of, he, he, 
he had seen so much and um you know wasn't naive at all about the state of the world and yet he was very positive i always found him very just his general outlook in life was very optimistic and so you know maybe that if if he shared that view i i, I don't know but it just i was always impressed by that um yes that that was really why he was able to i think why he was able to um to accept things and not become angry i mean it's so easy to be outraged by injustice right but he saw because he his grandfather saw that the time was coming when we would have voluntary societies mm-hmm. that it was just a matter of time there was no way to predict how soon but mm-hmm. it was just a matter of time before we would evolve from coercive political governance to voluntary contractual governance and that's really what his thought the main thrust or what I consider perhaps the main uh, thrust of his philosophy. So my big question is this, this manorial model or the Spencer Heath model, what you guys are doing in Ciudad Morazan, um, can we do that here? Could I go to, you know, I live in Kentucky. Could I go to a county government and say, hey, we'd like to set up a proprietary city We'd like, um, you know, whatever, whatever plot of land to be under our jurisdiction, we'll do all this stuff, you know, you'll get something from it. Um, But we'd like to have it under our jurisdiction and run it basically along along the model along the lines that you've just described. Do you see that as a possibility, you know, in the United States? I know that there are people that are trying to do that. Um, and I don't know exactly how much success. I know that the the politicians are against it. The culture is against it. Um, the idea of uh, there's there's so many so many things that make it difficult. But I don't think it's impossible. And I think if enough people, uh, if if enough hearts and minds are changed, <laughs> if enough people understand the advantages and the benefits of those that kind of voluntary contractual governance, uh, it can be done. I agree with Spencer Heath. It will eventually be done. It's just a matter of time. Right now, it seems very hopeless because of a lot of the things that that we've gone through in the last couple of years, the uh, you know a lot of attitudes that that seem to be very much opposed to freedom. Uh, there's a lot of people that that enjoy having someone tell them what to do. They they don't want the responsibility of freedom, and it is a responsibility. I mean, freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. They're two sides of the very same coin. Uh, You can't really be responsible if you're uh, constrained, if you're a slave. And you can't, um, uh, if you are free, you have to be responsible because you're the one that suffers the consequences of your decisions. So those two things, we've raised a whole generation or two or three of people who don't want to be responsible, who don't want to 
face the consequences of having to make their own decisions. So it is, it's not going to be easy, but I think it will happen eventually. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the Free Cities Foundation and what that is? Ah, Free Cities Foundation is, it was actually founded by Tita Skebel, uh, who wrote the book Free Private Cities. And it was originally, you know, uh, designed to support that model. But they decided to sort of expand to also support similar models that are not exactly a lot like the free, you know, the free private city model with the city operator and um, uh, totally contractual and uh, and autonomous from any higher jurisdiction. And that has that expansion has uh, includes things like intentional communities, which is something like what you're talking about in the U.S. There are people that are starting intentional communities. Well, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, where people get together and and try to form their own communities that are um, uh, based on their mutual goals and interests and and a lot of them are based on the desire for freedom but they still have uh they're still subject to the jurisdiction of a nation state and they still have to ask permission to be free in any aspect of their lives um so that that's still a step in the right direction, and the Free Cities Foundation is supporting that with, you know, however we can. Um, there's also, well, uh, the Zedes, Prospera, and Ciudad Morrison are not exactly free private cities because they are still under the jurisdiction of the Honduran Constitution and uh, courts and things. So. Uh, the broader umbrella allows us to find more people that are making steps toward more freedom, building cities that are more free than what we're used to. <laughs> and the uh, Free Free Cities Foundation, last year, it was uh, there was a conference called Liberty in Our Lifetime that was held in a private location in Switzerland. Um, that had a little over 100 participants and uh, I think 16 speakers. This year, the say the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference was in Prague, and there were twice as many people. Twice it's there were like 40 speakers. Uh, it's growing so much, and everyone, all of the feedback from the people who attended has been so positive that we're expecting it to be even greater next year. Wow. So I'm I'm on staff as a contract writer, <laughs> so <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> but uh, where will I, the conference be next year? Pardon me. Where Where will it be next year? Do, do you uh, know? It, it's expected. Well, it will be in Prague again. Oh, nice. We'll, we'll be in Prague for at least two years, mm. and we're not sure yet of the exact venue if it'll be the same venue or not. 
but um, the there are a lot of people making suggestions for for where it might be the year after. <laughs> and I'm sure continues growing uh as it grows there'll be needs to to get bigger and bigger venues <laughs> yeah well that's exciting that's very exciting yeah. there is a lot of work you know when i decided i in 2019 i decided that i wanted to devote the rest of my life to uh supporting proprietary cities and i didn't think anybody was working on it <laughs> i didn't know anything that was any even close to a proprietary city and I have been amazed at the people that are sort of joining the movement. Um, just, I think uh, they say that every cloud has a silver lining. And I think in a way COVID was a wake up call for a lot of people. Yeah. The yeah. overreach of government in response to uh, a pandemic that was certainly no worse than many pandemics we've experienced in in our lifetime, even my lifetime, certainly. Um, I mean, people forget that 1969 was a very bad pandemic, the Hong Kong flu. Right. And it was the year of Woodstock. Right. The government right. shut everybody down. <laughs> yeah. And when you compare, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there, there's a lot about COVID that that's as a disease that's very disturbing but uh, you know you don't want to downplay it as a disease but the overreach of government was just incredible and now we're seeing excess deaths mm -hmm. that far mm -hmm. outweigh the people who actually died from the disease at yeah. the height of the pandemic so yeah, uh, I, th yeah. I think it has been a wake-up call I think you know Anybody who has any inclination towards liberty has just been, you know, outraged by what's happened. But then a lot of people who were never on our side have been woken up to to just, you know, what our governments are capable of. And so, yeah, it's it's. I think it's absolutely been a, a big silver lining. And you know, even though we, you know, people who love liberty may never be in the majority we may have just hit a tipping point that's big enough for us to be able to, to have our own cities and really, you know, create, create the kind of, the kind of um, societies that, that we really want to. Um, anything else as we, as we wrap up, any, any final thoughts, anything else that you wanted to get in there? Well, I did want to talk a little bit about, um, Spencer Heath's ideas of the way he reconciled economics and religion and spirituality. Yeah. Um, they, his, one of his biggest ideas that, that people don't seem to realize is that serving your fellow man by producing goods and services for profit is the most loving and Christian thing that you can do. Uh, whether you're working for one employer or a million customers, you're still, if you're serving your fellow man for profit, that that is a service that counts. It's, that's what shows real love. You're not sitting around and expecting the world to give you a living. <laughs> um, the, uh, the thing that profit has been so put down, and yet it is the thing, the fundamental thing that you have 
the most important thing to indicate what people really want. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what people really want. You could bureaucrats guessing that people want something and passing laws to give away whatever they think people want is doesn't tell you anything. Voting people people vote for what sounds good. They don't vote for what they really want. Right. Well, it doesn't but, cost them anything. Exactly. Real democracy. And and this is a thing, oh, protect our democracy, make sure everybody votes. This is something that real democracy is voting with your money and voting with your feet. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, you really know what people want when they're willing to pay for it. And you know that you're really serving your fellow man when you're making a profit from it. So the the idea of demonizing profit and demonize doing business is the most unchristian thing yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you can do. And that was that was a big thing that I got from Spencer Heath's work. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, again, I haven't read the final, and I'm gonna I'm gonna link to this book too, um, hoping that people can can get copies, you know, in time for Christmas. I actually I bought 10 copies of this because I'm gonna be I'm gonna be giving it out to people. Um I've got a few people in mind and I'm sure others will come to mind because I just, I think this is really important. And again, I haven't read the final version. I read the, the, I don't know what to call it, but the, the sort of infant version that that Spencer McCallum had. (laughs) Yeah. Back in 2018. But I was so impressed with Spencer Heath's thinking and, and just the way that he expressed what you're talking about right here. Um, it's just, it's, it's inspirational. Um, and so I just, I just, as a little plug, I just want to sort of point this out to people that um, I, I just really recommend getting this book. I think it's, I think the ideas in here are so important for, for, you know, where we are right now in the world. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and I would also recommend reading for people reading, read the front matter because there's a lot of interesting information at the beginning and the introduction and Spencer's editor's remarks that will really uh, give better context to the speeches. Okay, right. They just stand on their their own. I mean, as you and I both read just the transcripts of the speeches, they can definitely stand on their their own. But by adding the additional material at the beginning and by adding the uh, the question and answer, and hopefully my story can kind of make it even more um, uh, accessible and, and relatable and uh, help people um, remember it better, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, stories, stories tend to sort of sink in that way, sometimes more than just ideas. Thank you so much for for being on. Um, this has been really fantastic. I just think this again. I just think this is really these ideas are are critical, and especially now. I think I I feel like there's probably more um, of an opening out in the world, more receptivity to to what Spencer Heath was was saying. Um, so um, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's yeah, been and- fun. Yeah, yeah. And um, just a reminder, everybody run out and, and buy the book. And I'll put links up to to everything that we talked about, because I realized we covered quite a lot of, lot of ground. Um, thank you so much. Thanks.